0: I'm Richard Feldman, and you're listening to The Changelog.
1: Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 191, and on today's show, Jared and I are joined by Richard Feldman from No Red NoRedInk. We talked about Elmlang, the best of functional programming in your browser, We talked about functional programming versus object-oriented programming, how Elm can boast about no runtime exceptions, we dove deep into Elm Lang itself, and whether or not it's really faster than React or not. We talked about JavaScript fatigue. We also talked about the best ways to get started with Elm. We have four awesome sponsors for the show, CodeShip, DigitalOcean, OpBeat, and also Container World. Our first sponsor is Codeship. If it works with Docker, it works with Codeship. For those out there with established Docker workflows or those looking to leverage native Docker support while automating your testing and deployment, check out Codeship's new Docker platform at codeship.com slash changelog. And for those looking for great resources to automate your development workflows with Docker, you should download Codeship's free ebook covering why consistent environments are so important how a company lost 400 million dollars in 45 minutes due to inconsistent environments and also how to build an app to run inside an isolated docker container head to codeship.com slash law to check out codeship's new docker platform and head to resources.codeship.com ebooks to download that free ebook i mentioned on automating your development workflows with docker and now on to the show
2: All right, everybody, welcome back. Today, we are talking all about Elm, a new functional programming language for the browser that's been making some pretty big waves in the open source community. Joining us to talk about Elm is Richard Feldman, who had a hit talk at Strange Loop this year titled Make the Backend Team Jealous, Elm in Production. Richard, welcome to the show. Great to be here. That's a nice name for a talk. I'm jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? Of course, that voice is Adam Stack. Adam, what's up, man? Hey, dude. What's going on? Just excited for Elm. How about yourself?
1: You know, I'm pretty excited about it. I mean, we we talked about it a little bit with Dan mm-hmm. uh, Abramoff recently and a couple of shows we've mentioned it here and there, but we haven't had a chance to, to dive deep into it. And I think it's always interesting, too, whenever conversations like this bubble up from our community. So, uh, again, uh, another great suggestion here from Kevin McGee. He suggested us to talk to Evan a while back. I think it was like September 17th, so... You know, if you're out there and you're listening and you're like, hey, I submitted an issue for a podcast suggestion to your ping repo. Why haven't you responded yet? Well, it takes us a bit to do some research and we got a, a backlog of shows. But nonetheless, uh, at some point, I believe uh, Richard chimed in or he was suggested. And that's kind of how this this uh, evolved into a conversation here. Right
2: on. So we should say that, Richard, uh, your involvement with Elm um, is what?
0: Uh, with Elm is an open source project. Um, my contributions have been uh, fairly—I don't know—I don't want to say superficial, but uh, I, I can't take credit for any of the compiler um, work or anything like that. Um, I've made some tools around it, um, uh, the most recent of which is Elm CSS. Uh, like I made the uh, the original version of the Webpack loader, the Grunt plugin. Um, a library that's a node wrapper around the Elm compiler for use in various projects. Um, So I've definitely been more of a
2: uh, contributing community member than a core contributor, I guess. Seems like you might even be taking on the role of evangelist to a certain degree. Is that fair to say? Uh, (laughs) The
0: the term evangelist is weird to me. I'm definitely a big proponent, but I mean, uh, I... uh, I, I mean, people have said that about me. Really, the truth is just that I'm excited about it and I talk about it a lot. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't have, like, nobody's telling me to do that. <laughs> sure. I'm just kind of like, I just am excited and I'm loud. So uh, I guess that's how I come off sometimes.
1: <laughs> that's funny, Jerry, because back in the day, remember, I think you and I had some conversations about it before you were even a part of the change. law like when you just listened, Wynn and I used to say drink when we'd say SAS or Node. <laughs> and that's kind of how people saw me was like, hey, Adam's a really big fan of sass or a big fan of Thor. And, you know, anytime I got a chance to tell somebody about these things, I'll be like, oh, you don't know about this? Oh, my Lord, come on, let's sit down. Uh-huh. And so kind of have some similar kindred spirits there.
2: And yeah, I think, the, I mean, the term evangelist is, I think it has some connotations of somebody who works officially for something and is a marketing person or a promoter, Um but I was using it in the more denotative form of like someone who's out, you know, spreading the good news. And it seems like whenever Elm is brought up, uh, Richard, your name is around that conversation because, like you said, you are excited about it um, and you're out talking about it. So uh, that's all good stuff. Yeah, fair um, enough. Nice. So let's get to know you a little bit personally first before we dive into Elm and all of its goodness. Um, we did some research on you, but I think it was in vain because there's a lot of Richard Fellmans out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But unless you're a 67-year-old rider or an American bicycle racer um, who does mountain bike races, I'm not sure that we found out too much about you. You have a Twitter and a GitHub, and that's about it. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the programming game? Sure.
0: Um, So I got into the programming game when I was nine. Uh, I was really into games, and I kept uh, bugging my dad to sign me up for some sort of course or something that would let me make games for people. Um, and, uh, and instead of that, he got me a book on basic learn basic now. And, uh, (laughs) so yeah, yeah. uh, but I ended up reading it and, um, and got, just got really into it. And at first uh, what I did was making games and stuff like that. And then, uh, somewhere in college, I'd always kind of assumed that I was going to end up making games. And then I uh, talked to some people who were, uh, giving me some, sort of inside scoop on what the actual games industry was like. And it sounded pretty miserable. Um, And I was like, wow, I don't know if I want to do that. And uh, somewhere along the line, I uh, learned about the web and uh, developing for the web. I mean, obviously i had been using the web, but, um, and, uh, and actually, I guess (laughs) specifically the way that I learned uh, web programming was I started a company that was going to be based on the web. And so I sort of had to learn it, um, and so at that point, I got into Perl. At this point, I, I guess I've been doing uh, Java, C, C plus Basic, Visual Basic, and that's about it. Um, and then I got so Perl was actually my first introduction to web programming, um, and of course JavaScript. Um, and uh, and so I, I just sort of uh, picked it up and got more and more into it. And then the more I uh, did with it, the more I fell in love with it. And uh, at, at some point, I kind of realized that I really like. User experiences, designing for user experiences, creating, you know, delightful user experiences, and um, part of that is uh, just the sort of the delivery process. So I actually had a, a talk at Strange Loop two years ago um, uh, around Dreamwriter, which is this open source writing tool that I made, and uh, now the talk was basically about uh, it was I guess offline first wasn't really a buzzword yet at that point, um, but that's what it was. It was just a demo of. Uh, of doing, you know, you can bring it up. It works offline. It uses IndexedDB and App AppCache because uh, Service Worker wasn't out yet at that point. Um, and, uh, and that was all just based around my sort of desire for this particular UX. I was just like, well, I want it to work. You know, I want to be able to bring it up and use it on an airplane. Um, and I still want it to be able to, you know, sync with servers and just have that nice, uh, no installation experience that we've always had on the web, and never had with native apps. Um, and the, you know, you just get to take updates for granted. You're just always using the latest version right away. Um, and so, uh, I guess at that point, I um, I built this big thing, Dreamwriter, and I had uh, i sort of been getting a little bit more into functional programming for the first time, and I had some friends telling me about it and encouraging me to. Um, try programming JavaScript in a more functional way or CoffeeScript, as the case was. Uh, and at some point, I started looking into other compiled of JS languages. And um, to make a long story short, I settled on Elm as the one that I wanted to use to uh, to do a rewrite of DreamWriter and get rid of a lot of technical debt that I'd accumulated. And uh, I just had this mind-blowingly great experience with it. I, I, I remember just feeling like it was like I was, you know, 10 years old writing visual basic again, just being like, I can make UIs. This is amazing. <laughs> and it was uh it was just so much fun and so uh just delightful. Um and uh I've just gotten more and more into it ever since. And uh it's it's like to the point where uh, you mentioned the title of my talk, um, make the backend team jealous. The reason that I called it that. Uh, was the, the inspiration for that was having a talk with one of my coworkers at No Red Inc. and uh, he he basically commented, you know, I'm I'm kind of jealous working on the back end here because it seems like uh, you know the front end team has gotten so energized and excited about Elm, uh, and it's it's done so many awesome things for our front end that uh, I wish we had something like that on the back end. And we're a Ruby on Rails shop, and you know traditionally, it's the other way around, where people on the front end are saying, ah, I wish I had a nice language like Ruby um, that I could write front-end code with. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it really uh, turned things around.
2: Curious about the, just going back a little bit to the company that you first founded, writing some Perl scripts, I assume that's some CGI stuff back in the day. Um, you said you started, you, you were starting a company on the web, and so you just decided that you should be a programmer on the web. Is that what you said?
0: Yeah. So at that point, I'd only ever done client side programming. I'd never written a server. I'd never done any, you know, I, back then rendering HTML on the server was sort of the best practice. This is like 2006. Um, and uh, the idea of building your UI primarily in JavaScript was still a very, you know, its time had not really come yet. Um, and uh, yeah, the, ironically, uh, not ironically, uh, <laughs> Strangely I guess um, the reason we ended up with Pearl was because this was me and my roommate and a couple other guys um, putting this company together and uh, we were trying to find some way to sort of uh, you know uh, get a code base started and we ended up finding this piece of open source forum software that already had a bunch of features we needed like authentication and a bunch of discussion features that we wanted to incorporate into the product and so we just said, Hey, why don't we uh, why don't we fork this and just you know use it as the the starting point? Um, and it happened to have been written in Perl, and so we were like, okay, well, let's learn Perl and use it. So, <laughs> that was that was our thought process, that, uh
2: ended up writing Perl for a couple of years. Do you remember the name of that forum software? Yeah, it was M W Forum. M W Forum. All right, That's not one that I was familiar with. I did do some Perl back in the day. In fact, my very first blog, Adam, I think I told you that story was was a static site generator called Blog Blogsum, like a cross of awesome and blog. Huh. You'll never say it. And, uh, yeah, that was a, a Perl script that ge- generated static files based on a set of text files. And I thought that was pretty lame because WordPress had just come out. And I thought, why would I want static files when I could do dynamic things with right. database? Huh. And that kind of It was funny once Jekyll and these things started coming out. I was like, wait a second, this is cool. Now I thought this was what we were doing back in the day. And I thought dynamic was cool. And now I've come full circle and I think static's pretty cool too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Anyways, NW forum haven't heard from it, but I love, I don't think you would because the, the homepage is pretty, I mean, if i mean not, not, I guess it's somewhat current, but the, it's pretty sparse in comparison to what you would see for an open source project these days. It's, mwform.org if I got it right. I've have, I haven't been
0: there in a long time. <laughs> kind of basic.
1: It's kind of basic. It's still around, uh, apparently. So, yep.
2: Based on Pearl CGI scripts, uh, MySQL, SQLite. Pretty nice. Back yeah. 1995. Copyright 1995 <laughs> to 2015. Oh, Marcus, it's taking me back. Wichita's out there, rocking. That's a long project. Yeah, it is. Still be going yeah. out there. Last the last we released was version two point two twenty nine point seven released December fifth of twenty fifteen. So he's still rocking it. oh
1: that's, awesome. that's, that's current, wow. real current.
0: That's dedication.
2: That
1: is dedication. That's, yeah, that's that's twenty years. Let's revive this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody go there now. It's not even GitHub though. I don't think is it on GitHub. I don't
0: know. This was, uh, I don't think GitHub was really a thing yet at that point. No. Definitely not in
2: 1995. No. Well, yeah, yeah. But even like
0: 2006,
1: think, was it? it wasn't, uh, yeah. GitHub's year, first year was 2008, if I remember correctly. That's when the uh, Git explosion, so to speak, happened.
2: I love the power of open source software where, you know, Mark um, Wichitel, if that's how you pronounce his name, is just out there rocking his, you know, his Pearl forum. And a complete stranger from, you know, who knows where can come by and start a business, you know, with that software and use it as a launching point um, into a business that, you know, sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail. But it's just cool how much uh, it propels us, you know, into being productive. It never ceases to amaze. Absolutely. So uh, one more question I have for you before we uh, hop into the Elm stuff is just just to expound a little bit on your Twitter bio. um, Because like I said, I couldn't find much in the way of bio for you. And uh, your Twitter bio is about as good as we got, which just says, let's go with the ambitious approach. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds kind of like a a way of life. Like your motto or something?
0: Yeah. I uh, I don't know if it's a motto. Um, (laughs) It just kind of uh, occurred to me that it's something that I say a lot. Um, I guess uh, whenever I'm... I like putting myself in situations where um, we have the opportunity to do something like new and exciting in a, in a way that's never been done before. And then uh, often when getting into the implementation details of something like that, we'll find ourselves in a situation where we're asking a question like, well, which of these you know, three or four different approaches should we go with? And usually I'm the guy saying, let's go with the ambitious approach. Um, so. Uh if uh if there's like an easy route and a quick and dirty hack, um and then there's something that's kind of like, well, this isn't quite the nicest user experience, but uh but it'll save us a bunch of time. I'm usually the guy saying, No, no, let's let's do the ambitious thing. Let's do something nobody else has done before. Uh-huh. And uh I figure that Twitter's all about brevity, so I'd uh I'd sum myself
2: up that way. Nice. I like it. It reminds me of, that. that thought reminds me of something that I used to say all the time, which is uh, temporary solutions aren't, which is, the nice. idea is that they're neither, they're neither temporary nor they are, are they solutions? You know, the duct tape approach uh, ends up being uh, yeah. permanent, unfortunately. And so I kind of line up with you there about the ambitious approach is The way I think of it is like, let's do it the right way now and let's take the time, you know, um, as opposed to doing it again, you know, three weeks from now or six months from
1: now. It reminds me of a line from one of my favorite movies, which is fear and loathing Las Vegas. It's the best movie ever. And it's uh, it's if something's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Nice. So I, lo- I love that one.
0: Yeah, I, I've sort of embraced that philosophy with my um, sort of implementation process where uh, rather than trying to design my prototype as something that will grow into the production version, I instead try to say, okay, we're going to have two distinct phases here. First is experimentation, and I'm just going to hack everything together, usually in jQuery, you know, as fast mm-hmm. as possible. Just to you know, sort of validate the UI and just see if it seems like it makes sense when I try it out, and it's completely unmaintainable. And I know that I'm going to throw it away. And then as soon as I get the design I like, I'm like, cool, throw it away, and then build the real version in Elm. And uh, then I sort of get the best of both worlds. I I get to start off not having to you know uh, be feel constrained by doing a nice job making something maintainable because I'm not going to maintain it. And then the second time around, when I am building something, I can be confident that it's something I'm going to want to maintain because I already validated that I like the design.
1: It's a similar approach as anybody has for like writing too. Like when you write something, like when somebody writes a novel, for example, they don't start out like writing the novel. They write out the outline, or they, you know, they put something together with without any editing or punctuation. It's just like trying to get the thought out, and that's the same I think we have like in your case where you want to get to some sort of validation point. It's like, yes, I should continue. And if I do continue, I have constraints around that and methodologies and frameworks and things that, that that can step in and begin to make it long-term maintainable and also collaborative with other people.
2: Yeah, it can definitely
0: be very effective.
2: I think it takes a lot of discipline to do what you said there, Richard, where you're you're going to throw the prototype out because it's really easy to fall in love with that prototype, even if you don't want to. Yeah. Cause you got your blood, sweat and tears into that thing. Right. And so I kind of like that approach of like, I'm going to build it with, you know, I'm going to make sure it's hacky. I'm going to make sure it's unscalable. I'm going to make sure it's kind of a kind of ugly so that I don't feel attached to it.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a good point. I mean, it's really a, a selling point of a good prototype is that it's so horrible that you would never want to maintain it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <exactly. laughs> yeah but nobody wants to maintain a prototype. I can remember doing something like that too, though, Jerry. What you're saying, fall in love with it, and, and you have to be careful of towing that line because you could begin down the in the, the path of of creating it, and, and you plan to throw it away. But you're like, but I could probably polish this thing. You know, it, it could not be what it really is. It could be <laughs> more special, and and you kind of get stuck there. But you know, Richard, you're, to your point, having the discipline of actually creating it and knowing you're going to throw it away it's probably helpful because it lets you explore cuz you're like forget it if at all if i mess it up then who cares if i am just going to throw it away anyways it's it's the you're very deliberate with the exploration process exactly yeah, that's pretty cool
2: i met a guy a couple of years ago at ngconf um the very first ngconf whose job it was was to build prototypes skunk works projects for a larger company that you know had a successful business and they were just you know trying to like try out new ideas and he would build he would build like a new thing every week or every couple of weeks and they just throw it away. And he was having the most fun of anybody i ever talked to. <laughs> he loved his job. And, uh, I don't know, I kind of envied that to a certain degree, but I could easily see how that'd be fun. Well, yeah. They pay- paid to build
1: stuff, and throw it away. Sure. Why not?
2: Well, at the other, on the other hand, like we want to build you know, software that people use. And so like throwing your thing away all the time is also kind of like, I think that would be,
1: I wonder know. how many things he built that didn't get thrown away that turned out to be big things though. Cause if you, you know, if ever if, if you do 10 things the year and two of them are hits, but you had fun no matter what, then I think it's still kind of worth it. Cause uh-huh. you're, uh, you're enjoying the process. We forget that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I think this is a good place to take a break. Um, We'll come back, and we will dive deep into Elm, hear all about it, what has Richard so excited about it. And, you know, it's not just him. Lots of people are talking about Elm or pulling in ideas from Elm if they're not adopting it Whole Hog. We will find out why after the break.
1: DigitalOcean is simple cloud hosting built for developers. If you have not tried DigitalOcean yet, in 55 seconds, you can have a blazing fast ssd cloud server up and running with your choice of linux distro cpu ram and even create new droplets based on backups or snapshots in time which is a cool feature for those that operate in teams you can invite multiple users to access and manage your account's infrastructure resources while keeping all of your sensitive information totally private head to digitalocean.com and make sure you use our code changelog to get a 10 dollars credit when you create a new account
2: all right, we are back with Richard Feldman, here to talk about Elm. Richard, the uh, homepage of Elm says it's the best of functional programming in your browser. But let's start with the first part of that before we get into Elm itself. Why functional programming?
0: Why functional programming? Um, I guess the main benefit to functional programming is just the the fact that it makes certain problems go away. Um some of the biggest sources of bugs can be traced down to particular fundamental things like having, um, sort of excessively large implicit state, um, mutating things, destructive updates, functions that have side effects that you don't realize. Um, and functional programming is a, a sort of frustrating term to deal with because it's a very, um, prone to different interpretations Uh, but certainly what elm means by functional programming is uh having no side effects anywhere in the language and everything being immutable and so those those two things that i mentioned earlier of sort of implicit state updates by side effects of functions and um, uh, destructive updates mutating things uh don't exist in elm And because of that, you end up with uh, entire classifications of errors that don't exist anymore. And, you know, we'll we'll get to some other things that Elm eliminates later, but um, that's the main draw. is just certain types of problems that happen, especially as code bases scale, that just don't happen if you use the functional programming style.
2: So Elm itself is a language, there's also an architecture Um, so be confusing to some, um, some people might think of it as like a framework. Uh, So it may compete with react in certain ways, or maybe not. There's a lot of just kind of people wondering what exactly it is and how it's different than all these other things that we find on the front end. And I think perhaps the most differentiating thing is it is an actual language. It's not a JavaScript framework. Um, can you explain why Elm is a language? Like why would... Why do we need a whole new thing? Couldn't we just do FP, functional programming, in JavaScript?
0: Yeah, uh, you can. And that's what I was doing before I found Elm. Um, so basically, Elm is a clean break. So JavaScript, you know, uh, we, we all know, was sort of hacked together in like two weeks by <laughs> Brendan Eich back in the day. And um, people have been sort of patching it uh, ever since. and You know, the ECMAScript... Uh, like TC39 and all these different committees have been working on different editions of it, and uh, they all have to be backwards compatible to a large extent. And um, Elm is sort of coming at this from the other direction. Uh, So Evan Chaplicki, the creator of Elm, basically sat down and said, what do I think is going to be a nice language to make UIs with? And he started off by saying that, rather than um, how can I improve JavaScript? He just said, just... Forget that, just starting from scratch, what would be a great language to build UIs in? Um, and then he built that language with the idea of having it target JavaScript. But from a design perspective, it's pretty much clean slate. It's just saying, hey, what, what's going to be a great developer experience? And um, so there are a lot of different languages that compile to JavaScript that go the other way. Uh, so TypeScript, for example, is saying, hey, let's take JavaScript and let's add types. Uh, CoffeeScript is saying, hey, let's take let's start with JavaScript and let's clean up certain things and let's add significant white space. Um, Dart t- says, let's take JavaScript and let's change it in these ways. Elm is totally different. It's starting from scratch and just saying, let's make a great language for building UIs and let's have that language compile to JavaScript so it'll work in the
2: browser. So maybe you could compare it a little bit with Script then, where you have a closure functional language uh, on the server, and now we're we're thinking functional. We're writing in closure in this case, and we're compiling to JavaScript. Is it more in line with Closure Script than say Dart or TypeScript? Uh yeah. Conceptually, that's
0: certainly true. I mean, uh, Closure Script and uh, David Nolan would want me to point out that uh, Closure Script is essentially just closure in the browser. They're not really different languages, closure and Closure Script. But um, right. uh, the main difference between uh, Closure and Closure Script and Elm, uh, I guess, there are two main differences. One is that Closure is a Lisp, of course. So you have uh, S expressions, lots of parentheses. Elm uh, mm-hmm. is not. Um, it has syntax that looks a lot more similar to, uh, you know, a, a traditional language where you have like x plus y rather than plus x y things like that. Um, and uh, and that uh, closure is not type checked in Elm.
2: Type checked. So I think out of type checking probably comes a lot of the advantages that you guys are espousing and and uh, sound like they're delivering on. Can you explain the type checking, why that's important and what that does for us?
0: Uh, sure. Um, so I actually have a, <laughs> an interesting uh, history with type checking. So I started off in a type checked world with like C and C++ and Java. And then when I I, I I switched from that to dynamic languages, first with Perl and then with JavaScript and uh, later with Ruby, um, I actually like felt that dynamic was much better. I I just remember thinking like, man, I just, I had to do so much work to be like, this is a string, and this is an int, and just writing out all of this, you know, verbosity and, and just um, not really getting a ton of benefit out of it. And, uh, and I remember hearing about languages, uh, modern la- languages that had um, type inference and faster compilers. That's, I guess, another big deal was that, yeah, Java in particular, I remember just like sitting for like minutes, just waiting for the compiler to run, and just thinking like, wow, you know, in Perl, I could have already been trying this feature. Um, but uh, but now, uh, you know, I, I'd heard that modern compilers have type inference, so uh, you get the Basically, you don't have to write out all the type annotations all the time. You can just write code that looks like Ruby code, essentially, um, except that the compiler will tell you if you have a type mismatch, you were trying to call something passing the wrong type of value. Um, and also that they can be a lot faster than uh, those older compilers. And um, essentially, Elm has just by far the best compiler I ever used. Uh, so not only does it tell you you know, about... Uh, type mismatches and stuff but it does it in this incredibly helpful friendly way like if you have you know let's say you're passing um a record which is kind of like an object with like 20 fields in it. it's like a a user record and you got like username first name last name address email all these things and um and you have a typo in one of them so like instead of uh phone number you have like phone number like you swap the e and the o um or the emn and uh In JavaScript, if you do that, then you're going to, you know, eventually you'll get an error where you're trying to reference phone number and it's going to be undefined and then you'll get an error and then you'll be like, why was that undefined? You'll have to step back and, you know, trace all the way back. Um, But in Elm, the compiler will just tell you about that immediately. And not only will it tell you about it, but it'll say, hey, um, here is what you were, you know, you're calling this function and it's it's trying to access something called phone number but what you're passing, it doesn't have phone number. What it has is phone number and it'll boil it down to that one line. It says, it looks like you have a typo is actually something in the compiler that wow. does a little levenshtein <laughs> distance check to see if uh, it looks like you made a typo. And it literally will say, it looks like you made a typo between these two fields. And that's just so far removed from my experience with Java and C++ that I just can't even compare the two. Um, and as far as speed, I mean, it's it's basically instantaneous. It's uh it's just so fast to compile. It's like usually under a second to compile the whole app, and uh, that's because it's it's really smart about caching. Like the first build will take a little bit longer. Like it'll take several seconds, but then after that, it's it's pretty much instantaneous. And I had this one crazy experience with a a coworker um, where we were we were doing this big refactor, and we were just uh, we made a bunch of changes, we broke a bunch of stuff, and then we were just going through fixing all the compiler errors that we generated. And um, we do this for about an hour because it was, it was a big change. And uh, by the end of it, once we'd already worked through all the compiler errors, we finally were like, okay, uh, let's see if it works again. And we went over, we switched over to the browser to refresh the page to see if it worked. And we were just struck by, wow, waiting for a page to load is so slow compared to just <laughs> hitting recompile and having it immediately tell us what the next problem was. And just remembering back that like, you know, in JavaScript land, my what I'm used to is every single time I refresh the page and then look at, you know, or if I, if I have a hot loader, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, re- reloading that. And then, like, looking in the console for the error and just, like, how much faster it is to just be at the console and just be like, recompile. And it's like, here's the error. Recompile. Here's the error. It's pretty nice. Mm-hmm.
2: Seems like we... I like spotting these kind of trends. Is this, this continuum of changes that we we kind of go through as a community over time? And um, I th- it seems like your path kind of uh, co- corresponds with my own, where you start off with Java, perhaps, or you know, a statically typed compiled language, um, where long compile times, a lot of ceremony, you know, and to a certain degree, most of us, some of us, kind of rebelled against that and went like full dynamic. You know, scripting languages, high level, uh, everything, and yeah. then we started to realize that you lose some things that were nice in that static type world, like like you said, these compiler warnings, uh, tooling. As the TypeScript folks uh, will tell you, they have all sorts of great tooling built up uh, around TypeScript because of that. So now it's like, well, it wasn't so bad, but what what we did, can we can we mitigate the things we hated, which was the slow compile times and all the verbosity. Um, and so these new languages come out with, like you said, really optimized compiling times, type inference, and really just things that kind of make it uh, palatable for us and to kind of have the best of both worlds.
0: So it's interesting. I, I, I want to say that there's a trend, but if I, I, I did this as an exercise, um, like a, a few months ago, I was thinking like, what are my like top 10 favorite programming languages to use? And, like, you know, basically on the metric of let's say I'm starting a new project tomorrow and it's totally Greenfield and, you know, what language am I going to choose? Just based on my own personal preferences and just see, see mm-hmm. if I can learn anything. And there's just no relation between a language's position on my list and whether or not it's type checked. It's just, like, like Elm is number one, but, like, CoffeeScript is number two. And, like, I've yeah. used Scala before, which has, uh you know... A lot of type safety it has immutability it has a lot of functional stuff but the compiler is so slow and Mm -hmm. and you know there i have some other objections to it too but like it's like significantly further down the list than other dynamic languages and then but then again you have um, you know other yeah basically when i was doing this exercise i thought you know it's really not about type checked versus not it's really about how nice is the compiler and that's really a very language specific thing. Like, I love Elm's compiler. It's really great. It's really helpful. But I can't say the same of, you know, most of the other compilers I've used. And in a lot of cases, I'm like, look, I'd rather you just got out of my way. If you're not going to be helpful, you know, <laughs> just get out of my way and I'll, I'll take care of it. Just just be fast. And mm-hmm. uh and Elm is one of the first compilers I've used, where it it actually seems like it's it's pulling its weight. You know, it's actually like something that I would miss if 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 Elm were dynamic instead, I would
2: I would miss it a lot. So, if you had to rate like, characteristics of languages that are appealing to you personally, a great compiler is like really high up the list. What what are the other top things that that well, make you know, Elm and CoffeeScript, for instance, your your two favorite languages?
0: I don't know if I would have rated compiler as one of my most. Uh, you know, sort of prized things until I had the, had the. Elm it sounds like it is I though. Guess. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it's become that. I, I. I mean, honestly, I've. I feel like I've learned a lot from Elm. A lot of um, things that I didn't. it's sort of made me challenge a lot of um, assumptions I'd had about what I liked about programming languages because you know I. There, there are a lot of ways in which Elm is different than other languages. One is is the compiler, but also just the fact that, you know, none of the functions have side effects. They're all totally stateless. I've never used another language that's that's had that at least not for building anything serious. Like I, you know, I messed around with Haskell, but Haskell's too hard for me. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I I can't hack it with Haskell. But um, but when it comes to Elm, you know, it's like uh, it's got that that same invariant where you have no side effects. And I I'd never really done programming in that style before. Um, and uh, and now that I have gotten some experience with it, I actually definitely prefer it. Um, same thing with immutability. It's like well you know, it's, it's one thing when you're using a library like JS or Seamless Immutable, shameless plug. Um, but uh, it's totally a different thing when that's all you have. You have no mutations ever and, you know, so the question becomes how do you deal with that? You know, what if you have something where you're like, well, what I would normally do is I would mutate some stuff, but you mm-hmm. don't have that available. Um, what's it like working in a language when that's all there is? And again, it's something where now that I've experience that i'm like oh yeah that's totally what i want to do now from now on (laughs) right Um, because it just again just makes certain problems not exist whenever i'm like okay um this this value ended up uh in in a weird place i don't know how it got this value and i'm asking like how did it get in this state and it's really obvious because it couldn't have been mutated it's not possible for it to have been mutated no matter what the value is. There's no mutations ever. So I just look at, okay, well who called this function? Who called that function? Who called that function? And it's just Mm -hmm. a very clear chain of functions calling other functions that are the only possible culprits for, you know, how a value got changed. It's really nice.
2: Yeah, I can definitely relate. Um, I have a Ruby and JavaScript background, and I've been writing Elixir lately, and the immutable thing at first, I thought it was going to be a big hurdle for me because I'm, I'm used to Ruby where it's like, do whatever you want, man. Like, right. you know, uh, internal var- or instance variables, mutate, you know, bang methods that you mutate the object. And, and I just thought that that would be really kind of like putting on a straitjacket to a certain degree. Okay. Um, and then I've also seen people who try to take Ruby and write, you know, uh, kind of Gary Bernhardt's idea of the functional core and... Comparative shell, I can't remember what he calls the outer shell, but it basically keep all your isolate your mutations into certain areas and write functional style Ruby, object oriented Ruby um, wherever you can. And that just seems like a lot of decision making, and you you have to like institutionalize that if you're working with other people. Um, But there's something freeing about like Elixir is just like nope, you can't mutate anything. Sorry, and so I don't get to choose, (laughs) And, and it's only really been annoying like once or twice where I just say, oh, I have to d- take an extra step or you know, just think about it slightly different. Um, it has been really kind of freeing to be like, oh, I just can't mutate things. And of course, all of the benefits with concurrence, concurrency and stuff that fall out of that are, are really awesome as well. So I can definitely relate with you and your experience with Elm. Um haven't tried it with Elm yet, but very interesting. And I want to talk about the architecture itself too. So the front end architecture of Elm because it's a language. There's also an architecture of like here's how you build Elm applications. And um Elm has a lot of features on the homepage that are really great. And it seems like some of those features fall out of the language itself and some of those fall out of the architecture. Um but first let's take a quick break because I feel I feel like that's a pretty big conversation. Um, Let's hear from another one of our awesome sponsors. And then when we get back, we'll dive into Elm's architecture and what that's all about and why it's interesting. We'll be right back.
1: Our friends at OpBeat are all about application monitoring for developers. And today we have some good news for our AngularJS listeners out there. Great performance metrics should not be limited to server-side applications. So we're excited to say that our friends at OpBeat have opened up OpBeat for AngularJS, and they're accepting beta signups right now. Head to OpBeat.com AngularJS to sign up for this beta. Here's what you can expect. You'll see the performance of your application in near real time. You'll be able to visualize the distribution of route render time so you can isolate edge cases. You'll also see a breakdown of your Ajax calls, template rendering, digest, and more. And you'll also be able to see the actual code the slowing down your requests. There's also mobile friendly views for when you're on the go. And all you've got to do is head to opbeat.com slash angla.js to sign up for the beta. All right, we're back from the break and we are here with Richard Feldman talking about Elm. Of course, Jared, we were going to say the funny joke, the dad joke, but we're going to leave that there. But uh, <laughs> just think, when me think about architecture, when we think about that, that funny joke, we're not going to say, uh, don't maybe it. at some point you'll say it, but we'll see.
0: Oh, no, I, I got to know.
2: <laughs> you want to do I it, had Jerry? Da- I put, no, I don't want to do
1: it. You don't
0: want to do it? I, it? Okay.
2: I put a dad joke into our notes that I was going to do because I'm a fan of dad jokes. And then Adam just like, I don't get it. I don't think it's funny. And I'm like, uh, I guess we're going to leave that one out. So now you're just uh, throwing me to the wolves here.
1: <laughs> no, no I'll, I'll do a TLDR of it. it. Long story short, it was like it, when you look it up, when you look up Elm in Wikipedia to kind of find some sort of description of it other than it's own website. It just has a description of Elm trees and Jared was going to read that and it was going to be funny, but it was be a, a dad joke that wasn't funny. So there you go. So <laughs> that leads us to the topic of architecture though. <laughs> uh, trees have, my joke. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Perfect.
1: <laughs> T- trees have architecture, right? So uh, it's no, it's no hidden secret here. I, I'm more of a front ender. Elm is invented to create, interfaces you know we talked a bit about different things of type checking in the in the past segments but you know what is it about the architecture what is it about that that should appeal to frontenders that maybe i haven't gotten yet why why am i intimidated
0: um well i i, I can't speak for you as to why you feel intimidated by it but i, I would assume it's just because it's uh very different right um So one of the claims that uh, I'm comfortable making about Elm is that it's much better than the JavaScript experience. But for something to be much better, that sort of implies that it's much different. Um, You can't really have something that's just like slightly different and yet much better unless the original thing was just missing something glaringly obvious, and JavaScript's been around too long for that. So I think uh, uh, as far as uh, what the architecture brings to the table... Um, essentially, uh, you guys mentioned you had uh, Dan Abramov on earlier um, and uh, yeah, so he basically uh, ported the Elm architecture to JavaScript uh, with Redux, so if you're familiar with Redux, you're familiar with the Elm architecture Um, it's basically a way of doing unidirectional data flow where rather than having each individual component responsible for owning its own state you have a single state atom just one piece of explicit state and uh, to the extent that you want to slice that up into smaller pieces of state for different components, um, you do that by having each of them sort of be little helper functions, um, and uh, they sort of sort of communicate state changes back up to the parent, the single state atom. Um, and none of them actually own their own individual local state. It's just you have one big state atom, which if you think about it, um, is kind of the honest way to represent things. Like In reality, you do just have one big state. It's just, you know, by sprinkling ownership of that around, you're sort of um, hindering your own ability to sort of keep track of that. You can make it so that some piece of state is out there. It's part of, you know, your application state as a whole, but you've made it more difficult for your, you know, program to keep track of it because only one particular component uh, is able to do anything with that. So the idea of having the single state atom um, is uh, sort of core to the LM architecture. And um, some of the benefits that it gets you, in addition to just being a nice way to organize things and making it really explicit how the unidirectional data flow works, um, is it gets you time travel. So you can actually have a time traveling debugger, which means that you basically... Uh, bring it up, you're running your program, and at some point you're like, oops, wait a minute, I just realized that uh, I wanted to change something. And you just hit pause and you scroll back through time. You just rewind time and you make a change to your code and then it hot swaps in. It hot swaps in your code changes and then you hit play and it's going to replay all of those user interactions on the new code. So you can actually see a demo of this on the Elm website if you search for like elm mario time traveling debugger um there's a little mario game uh that you sort of make with like a little uh in browser elm editor and uh yeah i said you make it but really it's just there you can just modify it and um basically you can just walk around with mario like walk left walk right jump and and so forth and then uh hit pause scroll back through time and just watch mario do all that stuff that you just did in reverse then you can go in and do something like change the gravity like change the code such that the gravity constant's different and just hit replay and just watch all of that stuff get replayed and uh and all of your previous you know user actions and uh currently the 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 current version of the uh, it's called elm reactor is the the time traveling debugger um and uh Currently, it doesn't support this yet, but um, I know the guy who's working on it and uh, it's planned for the next release of it. But one of the really cool ideas and one of the big things that I'm excited about with the next release is the ability to hook this into your QA process. So the dream is, you know, we have our QA guy trying out some new version of No Red Ink, uh, some new feature that we've developed, and he finds a bug. And uh, not only can he hit pause and, and you know stop right where he found the bug. But now he can actually export the data of all of the user interactions that he did to get to that bug. And then he can just send that to the developer responsible for fixing the bug. And now you've got not only instant reproduction, like you just load it into the Elm Reactor and then just hit play, and it's just going to do literally all the stuff that he did to reproduce the bug. So it's guaranteed to reproduce it. But once you fix the bug, depending on what the fix was, you can scroll back through time and replay it again and confirm that it's no longer reproducible. And of course, then the super duper dream is to put that into an integration test (laughs) and verify that, uh, that it doesn't happen anymore. Um, but that is all possible because of the Elm architecture, because it's, you know, everything is modeled around this single state atom. So, you know, all you have to do is say, yeah, just keep tracking that state change, you know, as it changes from one state to the next, um, and just write all those changes down, and then we'll just replay all those changes, and that's it. And um, when you have, instead, you have like local component states sprinkled around, if you want to get that same experience, what you have to do is you have to hook into every single one of those independently and pull them all together and then serialize them into one, basically, (laughs) essentially build up your single state atom on the fly every time. Right. um, Mm -hmm. And then serialize that, and then when you're replaying it, Pull those back apart, and then send them back down to all the components. And in a lot of cases, you can't even do that because you don't have the ability to, you know, set the the components' local state. Only the component itself does. And at that point, you are out of luck. So, uh, I, I realize I've just said a lot about it without actually describing what the uh, the actual Elm architecture um, looks like. But I guess uh, that's on the website if you
2: want to learn more about it. <laughs> you can also go back to episode. Oh goodness, I should have pulled it up. I think it was one eighty eight with Dan Abramov, who we go into deep details on how Redux works. And so if you listen to that, or if you would like to listen to that, you'll get some background on, uh, he, in fact, he, he basically says that he, you know, he yoinked it over from Elm, (laughs) from Elm to JavaScript was pretty much his move. He, he pretty much, you know, just come out and said that plainly. (laughs) For those Um, of you
1: going to 188, that's not the show, but it's 187. uh,
2: Thank you, Adam. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, lots of architecture stuff there. What about, um, what does it look like to use? What is it? What, let's, let's just imagine somebody who's used to writing HTML and CSS or working with um, those technologies, maybe not even so much of JavaScript beyond a little bit of jQuery to like, you know, instantiate a calendar or something like that. What does it feel, or what's your day to day, or like, how do you write an Elm architected thing?
0: Uh, are we talking just the architecture or architecture plus language,
2: or? Um, you don't have to like describe like the syntax necessarily, but for instance, like do you write plain HTML and CSS, or do you use Elm things to generate that? Like, how does that
1: all work?
0: Uh, so it's a lot closer to React. Um, so basically, rather than writing static HTML or you know uh, server-side gener- generated HTML, uh, instead what you do is uh, Elm HTML uses the same virtual DOM idea that React has, where you have a view function. That takes in you know, arguments based on the current application state, and then it returns this description of what you want the DOM to look like. So in React, you have JSX doing that, um, and in Elm, you just have a little DSL that's—it's uh, not actually a separate, you know, template language. It's just uh, using sort of Elm constructs. Um, so instead of uh, having like angle brackets around the word div, you just have a function called div, and. Uh, In Elm, you can call functions. In fact, the only way to call functions, I guess, is without uh, parentheses around the arguments. So it's just like div space, and then then you go from there, and then you sort of nest uh, different elements inside them, and that's all just done with more function calls. So um, to give you an idea of actually um, how familiar this can be, our designer, Stacy, um, she never learned Elm. Uh, Nobody ever actually taught it to her, but she knew HTML and CSS, and... um, she's in the habit of just going in and making commits when she wants to change something, you know, rather than going and asking uh, somebody on the front end team to do it. And um, she just went in and modified our Elm code, you know? Um, She's just like, oh yeah, I want to change this. And she looked at it, she's like, okay, div, div, you know, class, ID, whatever. uh, And uh, just went in and made the change. Um, So if you have an understanding of how these things are structured, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in a large case, Obviously, there's a little bit more of a difference than just going from angle brackets to, you know, no angle brackets. Um, but it's it's actually kind of surprisingly familiar. I think if you looked at a page of Elm code, you'd be like, oh, OK, I see. <laughs> I see what this is doing.
1: I was going to say, I'm looking at some of the code, too. And I can probably, what was, what was your name again? Your designer's name? Stacy. Stacy. I can lament, too, with Stacy on that. Because, like, if you jump in and just look at an unordered list, for example, you can see... The white space awareness. It seems that's the that's the case. So correct me if I'm wrong. And it just seems like there's this natural nesting, very similar to. It almost reminds me of like writing the original SAS code, not SCSS code, where you have this nesting, and it's obvious that there's some sort of hierarchy here, and it's very clear. It doesn't look like HTML because it's not. But yeah. the the tree and the parents and this you know the siblings, the whole ancestry model seems to be clearly represented. it when you write it
0: yeah those are actually um they're they're lists like they're comma separated with angle brackets just like you know in javascript with arrays um but uh so instead of uh, significant white space but um is the white space
1: a significance or is it uh i mean is it checking for that like
0: uh not in general there's like one or two cases where it is but it's not like coffee script where you have you know like if and then indenting means something right Um, it's uh
1: it's simply it's just for cosmetics.
0: Uh yeah, pretty much.
1: Gotcha. Since we're we're kind of talking about, you know, some of the angles where if you only know HTML and you only know CSS and you can easily step into and as I did, I went to your docs, went to the learn by example, checked out on our list as you were speaking, and it and aside from the imports and stuff that are ahead in the file, it seems pretty clear to me if I step in and you know, for example, Richard, if you and I were collaborating on a project and you said, hey, Adam, go, e- go edit this content, I can pretty much get in there, it seems, you know, just by looking at some of the code and doing it pretty well. What other things are are just like natural easiness things that Evan's built into this that makes it easy for those who already know HTML and CSS to step in and, and kind of feel ownership or some productivity?
0: I think that's, I mean, that's probably the biggest one is just the way that, uh, you know, the Elm HTML DSL is designed to mimic the actual DOM, you know, as much as possible one-to-one. You also got, I mean, you mentioned import statements. Uh, So those, you know, work pretty much the same way as uh, uh, require, except that uh, there's an additional, like, feature where you can import things into the current namespace so you don't have to use them with a dot. So, like, if you import... uh, let's say uh, you make a library called um, calendar. Let's say so you say import calendar. And one way you can uh, use things that you've imported is sort of the same way you'd use them with like require.js or ES6 modules or something like that. And You'd say calendar dot, you know, get current day. Um, but in Elm there's also an additional uh, exposing keywords. You can say import calendar exposing get current day. And now you can use that without the dot. It's just sort of imported into the current namespace. And you can, um, you can do that uh, not only by explicitly stating which things you want to import into the current namespace, but you can also say exposing dot dot, which means just bring everything in, which is exactly how you can get that nice uh, HTML DSL with you know just saying div and class and ID. Like I said, those are all just functions, but um, you don't have to say html.div, html.class, div, HTML HTML dot ID. Instead, you just say import HTML exposing dot dot, and you just get them all. So it's pretty nice for uh, for building DSLs, but yeah, I mean, as far as uh, how it works, it's pretty similar to um, you know ES6 modules or RequireJS. So there's uh, some similarities there. Um, calling functions is uh, not quite the same as it would be in JavaScript because you don't have the you know the parentheses after the function name. Um, but again, it's just sort of like you know function name argument argument argument. So that can uh, look pretty similar as well. Um, talked about like uh you have infix operators so uh, comparing to closure where you would have you know parentheses plus x y right. uh instead and in elm is just x plus y things like that
2: so the uh, javascript i mean it's, it's getting stuff more now but like es5 missing some like major core features of the programming language i think um like enumeration type of things collectibles and um, looping and different constructs like does elm fill all that in with uh with all the mapping and the reducing and uh, all these things that we could possibly want like is it batteries included or are you pulling in libraries to do uh, things like that
0: Uh it's definitely batteries included from the you know <laughs> functional programming perspective obviously there <laughs> you know there's, there's a very rich third party library ecosystem for other stuff but yeah I mean for like map reduce I mean all that kind of stuff there's a uh, there's a very rich core library um, that just ships with Elm. That yeah, you just just go. Um, the uh, the package manager is um, pretty interesting. It's uh, packageelm elm-lang.org, um, and you can browse through the core libraries and, and all the other community libraries in there too. Um, I guess that's one of my other favorite things about Elm is that uh, so it doesn't use npm or bower. It has its own package repo, and the reason for that is that it's um, I'm gonna. I think I think it's uh, pretty safe to say it's the best package repo in the world. I, I think uh I think that's a pretty safe claim. To Big words. It's, it's, it's it's the bold. it's the best I'm gonna say it's the best designed. I mean, I guess it's not as uh it's not as um you know large. It doesn't have as much stuff in it because Elm's a relatively mm-hmm. new language. But let me know if you've heard of this anywhere else, because I certainly haven't. Um so if I go and I make a change, so NoRed publishes uh, a library called Elm. Rails and it's just uh, so we use Rails and uh, we use Elm with Rails and so we made some helper functions that sort of you know introduce some Rails conventions into uh, Elm and just does some stuff for you and um, so if I make a breaking API change to that like I I change a public signature and like I make this function it used to take uh, two strings and an int and now it just takes a string and an int. Um, If I make that change and I change it from version, I say, okay, now that we're changing this from version 1.1 to version 1.2, and I go to publish that to the Elm package repo, it will reject that. It'll say, you did not follow semantic versioning. You tried, you made a breaking change. You need to bump the major version number. Uh So it actually enforces semantic versioning. It's baked in. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's true of all the packages in the entire repo. So when you're debating, like, do I want to upgrade this? First of all, you can actually rely on the semantic versioning. But second of all, there's a command you can run called Elm package diff, and you just give it two version numbers in a package, and it'll show you an actual diff of what changed. Like it'll it'll say, This function used to be this in the in the first version you gave me, and now it's this. Here's here's what it takes. It takes these things differently. And so when you're deciding whether or not you want to upgrade something um you can just find out very quickly exactly what changed and whether or not that's going to be a safe upgrade i mean obviously any you know change in a package can introduce bugs and things like that unintentionally but actually having packages that are reliable is on that level is as far as i know totally unprecedented i don't know of any other language that has that and huh. it's just like whenever i use Stuff from uh from Elm. Oh, uh, other things. It also um, automatically publishes documentation, and it actually requires documentation. So you can't publish something to uh the Elm package manager, the, the Elm package repo, unless you've actually added documentation to every single public function that you export. Mm, now, granted, really? you can get around with that. You know, if if you're if you're really sure, you can put in empty doc strings for, for things. Um, uh-huh. But it actually will, it won't let you forget, right? So you can do a bad job if you're really determined to. But if you try to publish it, it'll say, hey, you forgot a doc string here, you know? Um, You need to put that in before you can publish this. And so as a result, when you, you know, look in Elm Package and you bring up somebody else's library, it's like, yeah, there's documentation for everything in there unless the author, you know, really went out of their way not to include it. Hmm. It's really nice.
2: That does sound pretty awesome. I'm I'm not going to lie. It sounds pretty nice.
0: Yeah, it's, <laughs> I I hope I never have to give it up. It's it's like I said. I mean, it's it's so far removed from the experiences I've had in JavaScript, where not only do things you know break all the time, you just I mean, semantic versioning is just you know <laughs> sort of cross your fingers and hope they follow it. Right. Um, but uh, but also just I mean, because the the standard for contributing something is so low, and it's so easy to publish something, very often I'll be like. Man, there. I want to do this thing. There's like five different versions on npm, and they're all in various different states of disarray. Um, generally speaking, with Elm package, it's uh, it's like there's there's like one, and it's good.
1: <laughs> nice. I, maybe you can help clarify this. But when I go to the URL for which we'll put in the show notes, by the way, which is too long to to name here, but it's it's in the Elm Elm package manager. Like when I go to the Elm Rails package in there, it seems to me. A little sparse, and so I'm kind of confused what you, by what you just said.
0: Uh, it's sparse in what sense?
1: Well, like I'm at uh, the 3.0.0, and all that I see there is your uh, your logo, the no red, no red ink.
0: Ah, oh, yeah. So uh, on the right, you see where it says module docs? You right. got Rails and Rails.decode. Okay. Um, try clicking on one of those. So those are the different modules in there. Um, what you were looking at was the main page, and we didn't. Uh, we didn't put that's out That's like part that. of the
1: design part you you apologized about.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we, right. So basically uh what you're looking at is the readme and we didn't uh we didn't really do much, much with there. the readme. Yeah. yeah, but if you look at the individual things like if you look at get, posts and I mean all of those have
1: Yeah, know, I'm seeing it now. This is a lot more uh-huh. clear on what each of these each of these do.
0: Yeah, they've got, you know, code examples and exactly what the the types are and all that stuff um yeah, that's uh That's the part we care about, right? Is when you're actually looking up what do these things do. Um, We probably should have just put up a readme that said, "Hey, these are convenience functions for working with Rails." Um, But uh, the yeah, the documentation part that we're proud of is (laughs) the uh, the individual functions.
1: On the note of Semver, though, I think that's an interesting take uh, to you know require it, so to speak, from the package manager level because. Because if you're in a world where you can't trust Semver, which I think is kind of the world we all live in, anyways, it's like you know what you know how deep into some version do you uh, subscribe? You know, for example, and 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 to have the packaging to require it to me seems like a really big win because it's it's a level of trust that you explicitly place to everything in it, and so everyone has to subscribe to the same idea.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the Really nice things about that, uh, you know, being enforced is also just that everyone follows the same convention and everyone's held to the same standard. You know, sometimes in npm you have some people using three, you know, two dots, some people using three dots, some people using one dot, um, and they all mean different things to different people. So, in a lot of cases, you're just kind of like, well, uh, hopefully the latest version is good, but you don't really know. Um, you don't really know what what you're getting yourself into, so to speak, um, without you know, sort of intimately knowing the package. But in Elm, it's just very clear. It's like, yeah, breaking changes mean you increment the major version number. If you have new features, it's minor, and then everything else is a patch. That's it.
2: I like this batteries-included approach. I don't know if you, guys, if you guys read it or not, but Eric Clemens recently had a blog post called JavaScript Fatigue, uh, or on JavaScript Fatigue, which was seemed to strike strike a chord with how many people are feeling. Um, I think his is specifically to the React community where... You know, React is just the view layer of a much bigger um, application, hence things like Redux and the Flux architecture and Relay and these other things. Um, Pick a package manager, pick this, pick that, and it gets to be a little bit just overwhelming and and fatiguing um, having those situations. So having a solution with Elm where it's a language, it's a package manager, it's an architecture, it sounds like it's a way of life.
0: yeah, I mean, even like unit testing libraries, you got like you know, do you use Jasmine? Do you use Mocha? You know, do you use Node Unit? There's all these different right. alternatives. Two and Elm, choices. there's just one. It's called Elm Test. <laughs> you know, that's it, and uh, right. that's what you use. That's what everybody uses to write their unit tests.
2: Is that um, be- is that a top down thing, or is it perhaps an indication of the the life cycle where it's a young language, it's a young ecosystem? So of course, there's only one. Uh, Elm Rails package because there's just not that many people using it and if, as, if it blows up there'll be 16 Elm Rails and um, of course I'm asking you to kind of conjecture here but what do you think on that? Yeah,
0: Well I think um, an important thing to note is just that there's a, a strong community value about having one nice thing and sort of I think in large part that's due to a lot of people being familiar with you know uh, the problems that JavaScript has seen I also think that there's an important difference in that I think part of the reason that we've seen such an explosion in JavaScript has to do with um, sort of all of the sort of the nature of the JavaScript ecosystem where it's, you know, there's not a lot of leadership, there's not a lot of direction, you know, centralized, Um, like, if you compare NPM to like Ruby gems, for example, you don't see the same, I mean, Ruby is also a very big language, very mature language. certainly a very large library ecosystem, but you don't see nearly the level of duplication of effort with, you know, several different varieties for every single thing that you do in NPM. And I think the reason for that is not so much the age of the language, but rather the culture around things, where um, Ruby has a lot clearer set of standards for what makes a nice library. Um, At a language level, it's also got sort of fewer nice ways to do things. In JavaScript, you've got several different ways you can do any particular thing. Just just off the top of my head, are you going to base your API around synchronous callbacks or promises? Depending on what point in time you ask somebody, they might have gotten a totally different answer. Whereas in Ruby, you know, there is no equivalent question. It's always been the same, you know, answer uh for years and years. And but uh, I think you see the same thing in L where it's like, kind of like okay, here is the standard. This is how to make nice APIs. And if someone's going to make a new library, they're going to adhere to that standard. And so somebody else is not going to feel nearly as inclined to come along and say, well, I'm going to make this, but it's going to be promise-based. You know, Because there, there's no equivalent to that in Elm. Um, there's only one thing. It's, it's not called promises. It's called tasks. But actually, everything in Elm is task-based. All effects are task-based. So actually, in JavaScript, you have you can do synchronous effects, you can do callback based effects, or you can do promise based effects. In Elm, there's only one way. It's, it's all it's all tasks, and they all are composable like promises. They basically have sort of like the best of all worlds, and every single effect API uses them. So you, you don't really have the incentive to fragment like that.
1: But the other thing I've heard too about, and this is not throwing stones, but just stating some facts, I guess, based on opinions to a degree, but they're facts, <laughs> uh, is just this idea that It's the rigidness, I guess, which is there in in the Elm package manager that isn't there with NPM, is that, but also the way of NPM is sort of spur, uh, you know, spawn this idea of being very Linux like, very small components, very small modules that, you know, build upon bigger modules and, you know, kind of thing. But being able to easily publish something without documentation, without, you know, any sort of longevity promised, it seems like the things that are in place that you like about the Elm package manager aren't there in npm and maybe that's where the the discourses happen there
0: yeah that's probably part of it too i mean one one of the interesting side effects of um of having it enforce semantic versioning is that the first time you publish something to the elm package it's version 1.0 right and that that's it i mean there's no you know uh nothing nothing comes before that every package in there is at least 1.0 And you know that once you publish it, you're starting with 1.0. And every time you publish a breaking change, it's going to be a major version bump. So there's definitely a a higher activation energy required to get on there. So I've been working on this project, Elm CSS, for a while now. And I still haven't published it yet because I know it's not ready. And I'm not ready to say this is 1.0 yet. I don't want that out there, you know, being claimed that this is 1.0. It's just like, yeah, it's not not ready yet. and uh, it's actually, I've already published it up to version 3.0 on NPM, even though it's not ready yet, because I'm like, yeah, you know, that's no downside, might as well. Um, and that's it's kind of an interesting revealed cultural preference, I guess. Uh, I just kind of feel like, yeah, might as well put it out there on NPM, why not? Um, and, uh, but with Elm Package, I'm like, oh no, I got to wait till this is good before I publish it there.
1: Yeah, You know, one more note before the break on just the response back to that. And I think that's some of the beauty of NPM. So that's what does worry me a bit about the rigidness is that I think that uh, that lack of structure has been embraced by the community. That's also why NPM is blown up to the degree it has. And kind of maybe even why Jared and I said, that's tall words of you saying that you would venture to say that the package manager is the best is that that lack of, um, that lack of requirement has led to the the same explosion that happened when github came around it was like this is your permission to mess up git being branching you know focusing on you know all these different things that we love about git sort of allow the developers of the world to say okay it's okay if i mess up and because someone will fork it or someone will change it and you know somewhere down this path it will it will get made right i guess to a degree so kind kind of
0: now to me that's the role that GitHub plays. Right. And I don't think, I don't think we need Not another a GitHub, manager. you know, I think, yeah, exactly. I think like, you know, and, and Elm uh, CSS is a good example of that. Anybody, you know, it's all up on GitHub. Yeah. If anybody wants to try out this, you know, pre one dot version, it's right there at GitHub. They can, they can totally do that right now. Um, and in fact, my coworker actually already is doing that for, for an internal project. Uh, and he's having to you know deal with all my breaking changes every time I change something on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, then you have people saying that, uh, you know, GitHub isn't a package manager, for example. But I guess pre-1.0 or pre, you know, in the words that you have when you read me is that it's not production ready. You know, so you, you have that clear disclaimer. There are some that you don't subscribe to GitHub being the package manager, but before it's ready for, package manager itself it kind of sits in a github repo or a a git repo on github
0: yeah and that that division makes a lot of sense to me just saying you know i I agree github is not a package manager but sometimes you want to try something out that's really doesn't belong in a package manager and if it went out you know to a package manager it would you know mainly serve to confuse people and you'd have a you know people showing up saying i use this thing and it didn't work what's going on or i use this thing and it changed a lot you know why did you do this to me? And, you know, I think ha- having something just being like, hey, this is my code, but I'm not making any claims about whether it's <laughs> ready to be used yet um, is actually a good thing.
1: Yeah. We do have to take a break. So let's take that break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to focus on some potential downsides with Elm and also how to get started. So be right back. If your team is capitalizing on the usage of containers, you're paying attention to the business benefits and you're trying to stay ahead. You should consider attending container world conference taking place February 16th through the 18th at Santa Clara convention center in California. It's the only independently run event focused on containers. You'll hear from featured speakers from Netflix, eBay, Yelp, Amazon web services, and many more. Deepak Singh from AWS, Sabu from eBay, Andrew Glover from Netflix, Tom Jackson from Nordstrom, AJ from PayPal. And key topics include business buy-in and DevOps, security and networking, containers in today's pursuit of process agility, persistent storage and content, bare metal versus virtualization, the cloud, OpenStack and further debate, microservices, future cloud infrastructure, containers, standards, and the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Registration is available at... ContainerEvent.com slash registration and we're offering an exclusive 20% discount code for our listeners. Use the code ChangeLog20 for January only. Once again, head to ContainerEvent.com slash registration. Alright everyone, we're back with Richard Feldman. Deep in conversation about Elm. A lot of interesting things and you know, Richard, when you talk about something new, as you'd mentioned, Elm is and something thinking differently, uh, there's pros, but there's always cons too. So what do you know about the downsides of Elm that people may not think about? What can you share with us about the the, the hidden dark secrets, the bad side, so to speak?
0: The, the two things that come immediately to mind, uh, one is learning curve, because right. as previously mentioned, it's different. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to be productive, you know, as productive on day one as you would be in uh, JavaScript or a language, you know, more similar to JavaScript. Um, and two is just that the, uh, the library ecosystem is a lot smaller. Um, so everything, you know, the own package manager is full of nice stuff, but um, not nearly as much stuff overall as what you'll find on NPM, Bauer, et cetera. So um, basically the, uh, The And I guess maybe the third uh, drawback also has to do with those, which would be uh, just that there's not as much, uh, there's not as many resources out there. There aren't as many tutorials, not as many blog posts, not as many walkthroughs, not as much on Stack Overflow. Um, One thing that is great that you should definitely check out uh, if you're getting into Elm is the uh, Elm-Discuss Google group. It's uh, it's full of just ridiculously friendly people, just really open to answering newbie questions and stuff like that. Great way to get into the community. There's also a Slack channel, uh, elmlang, one word, com to get an invite to that. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I I have to say the main downsides that I've encountered have all pretty much been to do with the fact that it's a a relatively new language. Um, The way we work around the lack of library ecosystem... uh, I guess the, the newness of the library ecosystem is uh, just by doing, you know, interop with JavaScript a lot. <laughs> so like uh, we have like a, a date picker um, that we didn't want to rewrite. So we just uh, just interface to JavaScript and just actually have that, that, you know, jQuery date picker. And we have a little bit of JavaScript code that Elm calls out too, to invoke the date picker. Um, we have a full text search via lunar.js. Although actually somebody in uh, in the Elm community recently ported that to Elm. They did an uh, an Elm rewrite actually the creator of Lunar got on board with that and uh was helping out a little bit. It was pretty cool. Um so uh that stuff's happening but it's you know it'll take time. And so uh, we we just are very liberal about um you know doing uh interop with JavaScript, you know, uh, rather than being like, oh, no, there's, you know, nobody's made an Elm version of this yet, so we can't use it. We're just like, nope, uh, not going to let that get in our way. We're just going <laughs> to call out to JavaScript and have that, you know, one piece of JavaScript uh, be in our code base, and that's fine.
1: The perceived, I think that's a kind of a perceived downside, though, to a degree, because uh, if you mentioned the call we had with Dan, Dan Abramoff recently, and something he would said in there, Jared, was kind of interesting. Help me out if you can, but something to the degree of, you know, look for you know, thriving or new ecosystems that you can, you know, make a dent in, so to speak. That was paraphrasing his words, but it seems like if you dig Elm and you dig functional programming and this is something for you, then it seems like the things that you you call downsides could potentially be upsides for budding developers because it's a place to make a name for yourself or it's a greenfield, so to speak, you know, having the lack.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, uh, that's, uh, so we... No, at No Red Ink, we use Elm a lot, and like I said, we you know frequently reach for um, libraries and things that uh, are out in JavaScript and have been for a while, but nobody's written an Elm version yet. And we'll just post these things on the mailing list. We'll just say, hey, um, you know, this is something we've been doing with JavaScript Interop, and we'd love it if somebody did an Elm version of this. And uh, yeah, that's exactly where we where this lunar thing came from. And uh, you know, there's there's been other stuff before yeah. that where we just posted and people are like, Yeah, awesome. I'd love to get my name on that. <laughs> and uh especially because like I said, you know, Elm has this sort of community value of just having one nice version of things. Um, you know, so far when people have put something like that out there, that's just what everyone uses. And uh and so it's not uh it's definitely not without uh, its own merits even in as much as it is a a drawback in the sense of requiring extra effort in the here and now.
2: Right. Nice having lots of low-hanging fruit out there uh, for people who are you know willing and able to get involved. Oh yeah. We're talking ecosystem and we've been beating around uh, the bush of this project of yours Elm CSS uh, for about the entire show. I think it's about time that we talk well, we about it, it a couple in, in times, some yeah. detail. You <laughs> yeah. sent us a little lightning talk of you demoing it at a conference. Um and you were getting applauses before you even got to the cool part. So I thought that was <laughs> yeah. I thought that was pretty awesome. Why don't you tell us what Elm CSS is and how come you had so many folks clapping about it?
0: So basically it's a uh, CSS preprocessor. Um, which you know, I I immediately say that and it's like, oh, why are you writing another CSS preprocessor? What's wrong with Sass? You know, that's exactly what I um, thought. Yeah. And uh and that's that's a great question. Um, because I that's what we use right now at, at work. We use SAS and it's great. Um uh so basically the the motivation was I was kind of like, man, all of our front end code is now really maintainable. Like it's really easy to refactor, we can make changes, we can delete stuff, and the compiler just catches all of our mistakes. I mean, not all of them, but I mean, we literally we've been using it in production for six months. We've got like half a dozen people writing Elm full time at any given time. And we're trying to increase that number, by the way. We are definitely hiring if anyone's listening and interested in doing Elm stuff. Um, and uh, and despite that, we still have not actually logged a single runtime exception in production ever, wow. like from any of our Elm code. Um, our JavaScript code, yeah, runtime exceptions galore. We're not just like, you know, <laughs> amazing programmers or something. Um, it's just that the compiler just catches them all ahead of time, so they just never make it to our end users. Um which I've never had in any language. You know, when you say ahead now. of time, you
1: mean at development time, right?
0: Yeah. Like, like you know, you, you build your code and it says, you know, hey, uh, you, you messed this up. You know, you forgot to do this. You forgot to handle that. You, you know, uh, there's this corner case that could blow up under these circumstances. Don't forget to handle it. Things like that. And uh, it's just so good at catching things that we have not had a single one make it to our end users in six months. And I mean... This is not, you know, we're not just using this for a couple of things. This is just like all of our new features are in Elm and pretty much at every opportunity we'll rewrite our old code, which was um, React and Flux uh, in Elm. So we're <laughs> basically investing in it as heavily and as quickly as we can. And despite that, we're still just not getting any runtime exceptions. Not only, you know, not getting undefined is not a function, but none of the other stuff either. It's uh, pretty wild. So...
1: So Elm CSS, though, is when you write the style sheets, you're writing you're writing Elm.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So that was my motivation was I was like, man, we have all this nice stuff, you know, on the front end and everything's so maintainable. How can I get that in my style sheets or can I get that in my style sheets? Because I've, I've always had this experience where I'll be like, oh, you know, I want to refactor my style sheet and I want to change some styles around, but I'm just so unconfident that I didn't break something, I'll be like, I don't think we're using this class anywhere. And hopefully the class has a, you know, a a grep friendly name where I can just like search my code base. And it's like, oh, zero results found. Great. But a lot of cases, it's something that, you know, comes up in other places. It's just like a a common string, like, you know, button or something like that. And it's like, "Ah, you know, this is going to take forever to try and figure out if it's being used in different places. Um, Especially if, you know, maybe my JavaScript, I'm assembling the class, you know, from different strings, things like that. And so I was like, okay, is there some way that I could make my style sheets be as easy to maintain as my view logic is now? And uh, what I came up with was thinking, okay, well, part of that is that I would have to share code with my view. I mean, I want to be able to say, you know, like have a constants file where it's like, instead of writing out literally the name of the class as a string and ha- keeping that in sync in both places, what I want is like one constant that's actually shared in the style sheet as well as in the view code. And then because the Elm compiler is aware of that, if I delete it in one place and it still exists in the other, the compiler is going to complain and say, hey, that's not, that thing doesn't exist. You know, You deleted that, uh, but you're still trying to reference it somewhere. Um, and so from then from there, I was like, well, uh, is there any way that I could make this look nice like Sass? Um, and it turns out you can because in Elm, you can define custom operators. So like you have, you know, plus, minus, star, like the traditional ones, but you can also define your own. And it's sort of, um, you know, you, it's really easy to go overboard with that. So there's sort of a community convention to like say like, no, no, don't don't use a custom operator if you can just use a normal function instead. But it turns out, um, if you're doing like a trying to make something that looks like a style sheet, it's really handy um, because you could just make an operator called dot, and then now you have something that looks like a class definition, right? You say dot, and then the class name. Um, You can also make an operator called pound, and now that looks like an ID declaration. Um, And so basically, I just put together this DSL that does this, and uh, it turns out that that Now I get a bunch of other benefits that I hadn't even considered when I was originally just thinking, how can I make things better from the perspective of being able to delete styles? Um, So one thing is that, you know, instead of just having, like in SAS, you have basic, you know, multiplication and addition and stuff like that, and and you have uh, mixins that you can define, but... In Elm CSS, you have the entire Elm programming language. So that means that you can, you know, you have all of the module system, you have, you know, the full power of a functional programming language. You talked earlier about batteries included with stuff like, you know, map and reduce. You got access to all of that um, when you're writing your style sheet. And uh, so you can make it sort of as expressive as you want. It's not just variables, it's, you know, the whole language. And um, so you can, you know, reuse other people's stuff and, uh, and there's just a lot of, power that that opens up. Um, On top of which, you can share, you know, not only things like uh, class names and ID names, but even like animation namespaces. Um, So one of the other things that I incorporated into it is uh, the CSS modules idea of namespacing your classes. So I can do something like saying in my view code, I'm just going to say, yeah, this thing has a class called button. And then over in my style sheet, I'm saying, yeah, this has a class called button. But in reality, What's going to get generated is not button. It's going to be button and then some prefix based on you know the name of the style sheet to avoid class collisions. Um, but in my code, it's totally separate. Like in my code, in my style sheet it just says button, and in my view it just says button. But because they're both referencing the same constant, and because in both places there's code that's applying the namespace to that, um, you just get sort of all of the benefits and none of the drawbacks. You just have you know this nice, clean, readable code. But then, what actually gets outputted is something longer, and you know, not what you'd want to work with. And you're just working uh, when you're just editing your code, but you still don't get the namespace collisions. So basically, where I ended up with was something where it's like, wow, um, this has a lot more benefits than uh, than just being able to share code between the two. And I guess the the most ambitious part of the project, going back to my Twitter uh, headline, is um, is basically that. Uh, I'm writing helper functions for all of the, basically everything I can find in MDN um, for the the CSS spec. So what that means is when you say um, like background color and you pass it a color, it's actually checking to make sure, like you say background color RGB, you know, 250, 250, 250. If I change one of those RGB numbers to like, you know, the string hamburger, it's gonna say error. Like it's, it's, it's gonna say you messed this up. Wow. Uh, if I if I don't pass it a color, if I instead pass it, you know, um, like a length measurement, if I say background color five pixels, it's gonna give me an error. Um, so it's actually aware of what the CSS you know spec, how it works, and yeah. it can give you errors ahead of time um, so that you can be even more confident that your style sheet is gonna work on the first try. And that um, if you make a change where you accidentally break something, um, you're going to find out about it at compile
2: time. That sounds pretty awesome. So uh, Elm CSS, we definitely link that up in our show notes. It is not yet a package, right? This is still experimental, still proof of concept, or is it out there ready to be used?
0: Yeah, I I would not say, well, I guess uh, maybe by the time this airs, it will be, but uh, at (laughs) this point, I I have not been ready to publish 1.0 yet um, because basically I've just been trying out different... uh, you know techniques with how to do mixins and things like that. Trying to figure All out right. what's going to be the nicest user experience, and uh, and so I I'm like definitely circling in on the, the the nice API, but I don't think I've quite nailed it yet. And I want to wait until I've nailed it to uh, release it publicly. But yeah, it's. Uh, it's getting close, and one other thing to note is that although you don't get the code sharing benefits, um, it's designed to be totally standalone. So, it, if you've got a JavaScript project and you want to use a CSS preprocessor, where if you you know mess up your arguments to background color or something like that, um, you can totally use it. I mean, all it does is you give it an Elm file and then it gives you out a CSS file, so you can just use it in place of SAS or anything like that, anything else like that, if you want to, you know, today.
2: Awesome. Well, I, I'm I'm spotting yet another trend. Here, Richard, which is Elm is starting to to permeate its way through all the different parts of your system, and yeah. so the the natural question then is, um, when are you going to be right in server side Elm?
0: Well, some of us already are. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's not. Uh, it's definitely not. It sounds, the back end huh? is
1: no longer jealous though.
0: It, it's it's not. Well, like I said, uh, that that came from a comment from one of my teammates, and uh, <laughs> we're an ambitious crew, so we we uh, we kind of went with the. We, for a long time, we actually talked about different uh, server-side languages we might try, and Elixir came up, um, F-sharp came up, uh, Clojure came up, and eventually what we decided was like, you know, what we really want is we would just want Elm on the server. And so we actually have started working on, again, very experimental um, uh, Elms, like server-side Elm bindings. Um, but uh, that's definitely on the roadmap for the language. I mean, I've talked to Evan, the creator, about this, and he's... Uh, he's definitely interested in elm being a full-fledged, you know, server-side technology, not as an afterthought, but as in like it's a first-class like designed to be awesome on the server thing. Um it's just that there's only so many hours in the day and right yeah. now the focus is to make the best front-end experience possible, but uh, everybody's aware that that's that day is coming. It's just not here yet.
2: Awesome. Well, keep us in the loop. Let us know when that server-side stuff starts to make its way out to the GitHubs and the Package managers, because we would be very interested in that. So last question for you before we close up, um, which is you probably have a bunch of people excited about Elm and uh, ready to give it a shot. And I'm sure there are uh, many ways of doing that. But what's the best way, if I want to start you know, working with Elm today, what's the best way for me to get started?
0: So I actually made a blog post that's sort of dedicated to that idea. Um, it's called building a live validated sign up form in Elm. And basically what it does is it walks you through making a complete working sign-up form, which is something we've all built at one point or another, um, uh, using Elm start to finish uh, with AJAX You know, for checking username availability and stuff like that. And, uh, and all it assumes is JavaScript knowledge. Uh, it, it doesn't expect that you have any functional programming background, any Elm knowledge, any of that. It's just like, you know JavaScript, you want to build something in Elm. By the end of this blog post, you will have done
1: that. We'll link that blog post up in the show notes. I like your uh, like your blog too. No no red ink. That's I like it. It's nice. Yeah, it's great. We, we it's really easy to read. But it is yeah. on Tumblr. That's the bad side. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. So I mean I can we could probably go deeper in a lot of those things. I mean I think it's a trend too also, Jared, since you're spotting trends. I think our listeners always know like we could we could probably talk for another hour easily on a lot of this stuff and just keep going. However, we do have a time mark on this show. So maybe we'll revisit some of these topics with you again in the future. Uh, the The CSS piece is, to me, I think we just barely scratched the surface on that. So I would love to have you back on whenever you're closer to 1.0 or whenever it makes sense to dive a lot deeper into it. So you have an open invite back on that. Great. Um, but uh, we, we loved having you on the show today. So thank you very much for taking the time to, to share all of your uh, works with Elm and the things that are happening in no red ink and all that good stuff we also want to thank our sponsors for the show our listeners of the show and also our members if you're out there and you're thinking man i would love to sponsor the Change or just do something to support what we're doing here we we actually have a form of that for people who listen it's called the Change changelog membership join the community for 20 bucks a year we give you an all access pass to everything we do Jared, how often do we share interesting things back to the community, back in the Slack room, and have just deep conversations? There, like once a week at least. So it's always, always quite fun. Yeah, but we're in there all week, all week, all the time. Uh, we have a members-only Slack room, exclusive discounts from our sponsors, and different things like that. Favorite things we like to play with. Uh, we also have a awesome change log tee that's, it's quite comfy, and we give you that for half off. So. If you want to do that, go to changelaw.com slash membership. But uh, that is the tail end of the show, fellas. So for now, let's call it a day and say goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks, Richard.
0: Thanks for having me.